out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the mighty Lemon Drops, because I recently spoke to David Newton to find out more about life, love, poetry, all the other groovy stuff that happens when you're in an indie band. Plus, he has just brought out a new album, David Newton and the Mighty Angels, which is um, some project that he's been working on for a while and also during lockdown thought might as well finish it. Anyway, we'll hear more about that at the end of this interview. Anyway, um, yeah, so after some casual chat, we got down to that very interesting conversation that were the early formative years. I know, great question. Right, David, tell us all about it. We want facts, we want figures, we want the story. Well, I mean, for me, it was like... um... I don't know, there was always like music around the house. Like my, my dad, well, my dad was Welsh and he, he was into like things like the well, the Triorki Mail was quiet and stuff like that. And there was a, you know, we had a bunch of pop records around and that. And, you know, I had an older sister who would also was um, into, you know, pop music. And, you know, so there would be records around the house. Like I remember in like Things like that. we had oh, some really embarrassing ones, like the push bike song by the Mixtures and like Granddad by Clive Dunn yeah, and stuff classic. like that. But the first record that I actually bought with my own money was, I think it was either at the end of '72 or early '73, and it was um, it was Solid Gold Easy Action by T Rex, which I got from um, there was a an out of X chart out of chart box at uh, Woolworths in Bilston. Right. And uh, all, all the, basically when the records would drop out of the charts, instead of being 50p, they'd be like 25p. So the first one I bought was T-Rex, Solid Gold Easy Action. And, you know, every, from then on, every, and I was like, wow, when I got home, I couldn't believe it. So every Saturday, I would just go to Bilston Market and I'd head straight to this Box. stand that sold records and I'd, I'd buy a, an out-of-chart... Out 25 piece single and I'd actually followed like records when I was like you know what that one's going to be dropping down the charts and that one's going to go out so I'll bet you I can find that in the 25p box yes and uh, and that's that's what I do and that's so that was that was what really got me started into music and you know a lot of my, my school friends older brothers were obviously a bit more advanced than I was in their, their tastes and I would kind of borrow records from them and uh you know, and, and, you know, it was great being, being British really, because, you know, it's funny now because I've lived in America for 25 years and you don't really get unformatted radio. Like we had radio one, which I know you can make fun of, say whatever, but it was, they played everything from pop to rock, to soul, to reggae, to, whereas here yeah. you don't get that. It's like you get, you get a, a, a top 40 station, you get a classic rock station, you get an oldie station, you get a, you know, so in the UK, it was really great. And, you know, it, it was at the same time confusing, you know, in my, in the <laughs> mid seventies, just, just before punk, because some of my friends, older brothers were into say Northern soul. Right. And then others were into like progressive rock. And then other, others were into like, you know, um, just regular top 40 stuff. And, like I liked a lot of the glam and glitter stuff, like the 
obviously sweet and well being from Wolverhampton, Slade, uh, oh, local awesome. heroes, you know, of course. And and everybody who you like, you know, your dad's friend, like everybody knew somebody that knew somebody that knew one of the Dave Slade. Hill, basically, didn't they? <laughs> they all knew Dave Hill. He was Absolutely. <laughs> so that was, I mean, that's what, what got me into it. But but it was uh but you know, when I was like 12, 13 years old, it was 1977 and the punk thing happened you know and I was just at the right time and right because I was I was too I will have to confess I was too young for punk so it just was just and also because the other thing is having access to music was quite tricky because otherwise you know yeah. you could hear or not hear that would be the that would be brilliant you would just read about something and you'd go well that's great but I there's no way of me actually listening yeah. to it. It seems weird yeah. now without yeah. investing, you know, either 75p, which seemed like a lot of money when you had to get pocket money, or... Um, it was, yeah, I know, yeah, it was. Yeah. You know, and as for 3 99 for an album, forget it, you know, that was just too much. So, Punk, oh, but yeah. you, were, you were young, you were old enough for Punk. I was, yeah, well, I mean, I was, I was young. Uh, I was just on the wrong side of being able to go to gigs to see, because, like, the, the Sex Pistols, for instance, played in Wolverhampton, like three, like played at the club Lafayette twice, but I was 13, 12 or 13, and you had to be 18, 18 or right. over to get yeah. into those clubs. But I did see the, at like the Civic Hall, Wolverhampton Civic Hall, which was all ages. And m my parents would let me go. Like the first band I ever saw was Bebop Deluxe. Right. And then, but the following year I saw uh, The Clash played Wolverhampton Civic and supported by the Slits. And then, what was great was after that was just about every punk band coming through would play at the Civic. And I was old enough then, you know, my mum would let me go and, you know, because I was 14, 15. So I saw, you know, the, 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 everyone, the undertones and, uh, you know, uh, just, you know, most, all of the punk bands basically. And, and, were you, and did you also get that sort of reggae two-tone vibe as well? Or was that something that you didn't sort of come I, No, I did, yeah. Well, that was, that was around the time, that was like 79, 80. And that was my, I was like 15, 16 at that time. So I was getting ready to, to leave school. And that was kind of a funny time because it was like a lot of the people who, my age, who had been into punk. Yeah. And it was, at, at school it was funny because it was like, so-and-so's a mod. Oh yeah, so-and-so's a skinhead, you know. So, -and -so's a, <laughs> so it was all kind of weird, you know, in all these different directions. Yes. And, um, but when but the, the, the two-tone tour in like late 79, early 1980, played at Wolverhampton Civic, which I went to, and it was uh, oh, the selector, uh, the specials, Madness. And, and it was just, it was, I mean, I would like to say it was great, but it really wasn't because it was just, just fights like the, you know, the Birmingham mods went down to fight with the Wolverhampton mods and the Wolverhampton skins were looking at. It was just like a, a, a dumb time, which was kind of really right. overshadowed. So was it one of those gigs the band kept, bands kept stopping saying, please stop? Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, but Wolverhampton, like, I feel bad because I'm not putting my hometown down, but I mean, even when I saw The Clash in 1978, like people were just like spitting at them because they saw that's what they thought punks were supposed to do. Right. You know, and it was just like, I felt bad, like especially because the slits supported, you know, uh, you know, uh, three-fourths girls. And uh, they were just like covered in like people just like spitting, just because they'd read that that's what punks were supposed to do. And it was like, ah. Oh, you know, but that's, that's 
That's yeah. provincial uh, towns, I guess. Yes. Well, it's interesting you mentioned about that tribal thing because, I mean, yeah. we're, you know, more from the East Anglian country region. And, mm. you know, I have to say it didn't, you know, punk didn't really get to East Anglia for a very long time. But, right. but I do remember, you know, that thing of being very, things being very tribal. There was like status, yeah, quo, was. The, the, the status quo and heavy metal were really big. And you <laughs> mustn't say anything about the quo. And they were in Wolverhampton too. And way. that was, you know, they were the ones that, fans were amazing. So if anybody was a bit modish, which, which would have been very on trend. I mean, yep. they really did get chased down the street or, you know, around the field at least. You know, it was Absolutely. quite weird. You know, it was very odd. It was. Um, no, it was. I mean, you would like worry, you know, and, you know, going into town on Saturdays to shopping with your friends to buy records. And you, especially when there was, because, you know, a soccer game, a football game, you know, then there'd be the away fans would be out to have the Wolverhampton Wonders fans. <laughs> so you'd, you'd throw that into the equation as well. So there'd be the fear of either being... Are you going to get beaten up by rival soccer fans? Or are you going to get beaten up and chased by the by the mods because you dress like a punk or something? Yes, this is it's true. Just crazy, you know. So, I mean, th thankfully, it's not. Uh, I mean, it's not like that anymore, is it? I don't think. No, I mean, there, well, there was. The, I suppose that seventies was famous for the hooligan issue and uh, problem. So, and I'm I suppose sure, yeah. I suppose Wolverhampton was. You know, you had Derek Duvin, didn't you? Who was absolutely. The, <laughs> who was the man? He was up there with Frank Worthington in in Frank Field. Worthington. So, uh, yes. <laughs> no, absolutely. Yeah. I would like. Uh, yeah, I mean, again, like you know, uh, myself and friends, we 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 go to Wolves games, home games, not so much away games. No, God, but, uh, that would have been. It was great. Yes, well, Wolves. So then, what? What? How did you? When did you start to pick up? You know, an instrument and think, right? I might, I might sort of progress from just being the fan to, I might try and be in a band. Right. I guess it probably in school, it was like I'd always kind of, you know, I'd had, I think I had a guitar at home from, you know, my, you know, about seven or eight years old and I couldn't really play it, but, you know, not wanting to hark back to the punk thing again, but it was seeing like, I think it was, I saw the adverts on top of the pops doing Gary Gilmore's eyes and thought, God, I can, I think I can, I can actually play that, you know? And, <laughs> So then myself and a bunch of my mates at school had a little punk band we were called The Lowest Class. Right. And, uh, we played, it was great. We played, we actually played a show, a gig at our youth club in our, our secondary school. And uh, it was brilliant. I mean, there was like, you know, a hundred people there. And, you know, it, it, it felt like we were pop stars for, for a brief minute. But, um, there was the Andy Warhol moment. It was, it was. was. Yeah, so, so, so in 79, yeah. in 79, because obviously we had the hooligan issue, you know, the politics of the time was quite sort of everybody, you know, running in and out of number 10. And then Thatcher yeah. comes in. So that's the end of that one. That's yeah. conservative. And then, you know, we had the huge unemployment, the Falkland, you know, war. And then, you know, a lot of young people were just going unemployed and job seekers yeah. allowance and enterprise allowance. So, so what was your yeah. next period of the 80s? Because this is kind of a famous time for a lot of indie bands. This is their kind yeah. of their their sort of apprentice years being unemployed. It was. <laughs> it was. Well, um, I mean, I was in a couple of bands before the Mighty Lemon Drops. Like, uh, actually, three quarters of what became the Mighty Lemon Drops had a band in 1982 called uh, Active Restraint, which nice. was kind of like a punk, post-punk kind of, um, you know, post kind of, you know, uh, Joy Division, Bunny Men kind of. We didn't sound like either of those, but it was that kind of period, and that seemed like a somewhat appropriate 
How, lo how long did that band last for? Uh, we, we put out a seven inch actually in, in 1982. Um, uh, it actually got John Peel played it. My God, think, that must uh, have felt like you were going places. It, it did. <laughs> I mean, we only only sold like about 500 copies or something. But um, my God, that's so, but that was great. That was fun. And then I was still really young. I was like 17, 18. And then I, I actually co-formed a band with some friends from another band called the Wildflowers. And we, we actually got, we got picked up by a, a small indie label. Uh, it used to be a punk label called No Future. Right. And they, they became Future Records and then Reflex. And they, there were some other good bands on that label, like, uh, and also The Trees were on the label, um, The Very Things. Uh, and uh, so I did, I did an album and two singles with The Wildflowers in 1983, 84. My God. So and, were, you, uh, were you sort of finding that you were able to write songs? Um, I, I kind of, it was like natural really. I'd always, like when I was a kid, just would invent songs in my kind of head. I never really sat down and thought, right, I'm going to write a song. Right. Uh, but it was kind of, I don't know, it just came. It was sort of organic, really. I, 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 I never really thought too much about it. The Wildflowers was a collaborative thing. It was... Yes. We all, we all, everybody else wrote. And um, so after I was in the Wildflowers for about a year and a half, two years, great, really good times. We, we did okay. We, you know, we played a lot and supported a lot of bands then. So were you a kind of full-time musician, as in, was this your no. main, not, right? Uh, we, we all had jobs. I actually worked in the music, I worked in the music shop nice. for a while. And, uh, then um, actually, then I had to. I, they, they let me go because we we got a chance to record an album at Cargo Studios in Rochdale, and the gaffer was a total dick and he wouldn't give me the time off. My God! So I had to leave the job. So then. So, so how I, did you get on in Cargo Studios? Because everyone loves Cargo Studios, don't they? Because we just look at the back of records and see that you know uh, the Chameleons was recorded there, yes. and uh, you know Teardrops uh, or whatever, all these records. And it wasn't that expensive. It was like affordable. And we weren't right. paying for it. It was uh, this label, uh, Reflex, paid for it. So, yeah. And, you know, Cargo was great. And then actually, uh, I left the Wildflowers at the end of 84. And I, I had no job or nothing. And I started knocking about with Paul Marsh again, who would actually, he'd just, he, uh, he'd lost his job. So we were both unemployed and we were just like, we, hadn't, we had no money, nothing to do. We were dicking around. And then I just thought we should, you know, why don't we put another band together again? Because he'd been in active restraint as well. Right. Had, and we're like, well, we need a bass player. We need, well, why don't we get, why don't we get Tony? Uh, who'd also been in active restraint. So that was three quarters of what became the Mighty Lemondoffs. This was, this was like February, 1985. And year. we, and originally the we wanted our friend Keith to play drums, who uh, had been in a band with Tony before that, and uh, but we we got through a friend of a friend, this guy Martin Jilks, who played drums with us for about six months, and uh, it didn't really work out. Martin actually went on to join the Wonder Stuff. Right after after that, is Martin and, still alive? 
No, Martin passed away in 2005. He was actually, uh, I think he believe, I believe it was in a, a, a car accident or something. Oh my God, horrendous. No. I, I seem to, because I did an interview with Miles and yeah. there seemed to be, oh, yeah. what, there seemed to be, one of the band, one of the positions of the band, you know, like one of the instruments, they seem to lose a lot of members on that particular kind of. I thought, God, you wouldn't want to be the drummer or bass player in that band because you're probably going to. He's not good. <laughs> Sorry, that's not funny, by the way. I didn't mean to. Well, I know, yeah. Um, oh. No, well, I mean, I kind of know all that lot because I remember because Miles and Malk from Wonderstuff, they were they were in a band with Clint and Adam from Pot Will Eat Itself. And right. we, we all knew each other because, you know, well, I guess Wolverhampton, but uh, in Dudley, which is about I don't know, seven or eight miles from Wolverhampton, there was a great club called JB's. Right. Which, is, which had like every, I mean, every band would, it was like on the circuit and every up and coming band, you know, yes. held like less than like 300 people to, I think 275. And that's how I know uh, Clint and Adam and Miles and, and Malk and all yes. of you know, the, the, what, what became those other bands. So we all kind of knew each other and it was all, you know, and that's pretty much how I, how I met Tony from the Lemon Drops and Keith, Lemon Drops and all that. So it was like JB's Dudley is, is a whole circle of kind of oh, bands yeah. that, that came out of that. Well, it so, sounds so glamorous, doesn't it? JB's Dudley. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's kind of legendary. I mean, there's actually a book. Oh, I is mean, there? About, I love these yeah, things. I must it's, like, it's great. I mean, it was like in the 70s. Like, I mean, every, like, just about every up and coming band fight day. You yeah. Know? I, I so missed a lot just, of the. Because I know this is like being an outsider, but you, you know, from the Midlands, you had, you know, obviously we all go on about Black Sabbath, don't we? And then, and then it, it was ELO, and then other bands like. Yep. The very things was that all sort of were they all sort of within your kind of sphere and and sort of consciousness? Not at all, no, no. I mean, the bands that I just mentioned were like the, the Wonder Stuff and Popper Lady Self, yeah, even Ned and Tommy Dustbin, who were a little younger than me, but yes. we knew, I knew them, you know, they would be at JB's, but you know, uh, we we I, I kind of knew the very things because because when I was in the Wildflowers, they were on the same label as us, yes, but uh, but they're, they're from Redditch, which is. You know, it's funny because in the Midlands, it's like Dudley and Wolverhampton. Now, it's only about, about seven or eight miles away, but it, it, it might as well be like 50 miles away. You know, it, it's, it's, and like London, I mean, that there, London was like, you know, it's like this mythical thing that was like, but it's, you know, it's, it's only funny, even two yeah. hours away. You know? It's funny because <laughs> I've spoke to a few people in America who, you know, lived in those places where when they went to see a band, they were like, oh, yeah, we had to drive for sort of, I don't know, 10 hours to the, to this, this. Oh, no. oh yeah. And, <laughs> I was like, my God, you drive 10 hours to go to it. It's oh, like, no. that's what you did. And it's like, wow, you were yeah. dedicated, weren't you? You know, it was like, <laughs> and then had to drive home. It was like, it makes me feel a bit embarrassed. Like, oh, seven miles, yeah. can't be bothered, you know. Well, I, know. I mean, it's, like, it's more spread out, obviously. I think it was an eye opener the first time that my, my, the Lemon Drops ever came to. Yes, America, I would imagine, actually. The one gig would be, would be like, you know, a, 10 hour drive to the yes. next one, which is the, the length and, you know, of, of the UK, basically. I know, so it, does, it's, I know. It's a, it is a completely different thing. It, it makes you realise how small the UK is. So when, when the three of you got together and then Martin, did it feel yep. like, because you'd been in previous bands and you were slightly yep. a bit older, did it feel like you were... We were still quite young though. I mean, I, I, I was 20 at the time when the Lemon Dots formed. Blimey. Which I mean, 
that's quite young, really. I remember because I had my twenty first birthday it was um, it was at a Lemondorf's gig in London with the. Uh, we played with the June Vides at Pinder of Wakefield. Blimey. And it's really funny because it was, uh, looking back, it was my 21st birthday. And I remember I had a 1974 Morris Marina at the time. Classic. And like, I remember I drove, like, I, we, we couldn't afford to rent a van. So I drove from Wolverhampton and Paul, uh, I think it was either Paul or Tony drove one of their cars too. And I remember after the gig, driving back all the way in like my clapped out, like, uh, Morris Marina. Like you know, uh, 120 miles, and that, that's how I spent my 21st birthday. Nice, <laughs> Morris. I think it was a Morris Imp as well, wasn't there? Which was even smaller. Yeah, I didn't. I had a Hillman Imp actually. Oh, Hillman Imp. That's yeah. it. I actually, I've had several Hillman Imps. That's, that's one of my favourite cars of all time. Yeah, I'll have to go and Google what that looked like. Actually, I must admit the name doesn't really spark kind of sexiness, does it? Imp. Yeah, there's no wonder the company went bust. Um, so look, yes. and then so so when you started, because I, I, you know, I have to confess, I was one of those people that when John Peel played your single, like a, like I was going to say, like, like an angel, like a, not a, not the Madonna song, I did go and buy the 12 inch, which is very exciting. Uh, if only I'd got it next to me, you'd have been really like, yeah, boring. But anyway, yeah. So so did you sort of the, did the sound come together uh. quite quickly? Yeah, it was more, I think it was a case of, it was quite simple, really. It wasn't overthought. It was just that even though we were quite young, we'd all kind of been in different bands and we're like, you know, this time let's let, let's kind of get it right. You know, it's just like Tony, you know, Tony was really, you know, because Tony and I wrote the songs, basically. We both had the same ideas. We also had this thing of like, you know, it's like, you know, because every band in like Wolverhampton, they had like, they, they, the, the the band members didn't look like they belonged in the same band. If that kind of, you know, you'd have like a, a skinhead on vocals and a, and a and a mod on bass and a and a, a you know a, a heavy metal, you know, just like a mixture. So we just, you know, I think we looked at like I remember because I had a book on. I think was it me who had that or Tony on on uh, Velvet Underground? I think the book was called Uptight. Oh, and, by Victor um, um, Bockris. Victor Bockris, yeah. yeah. I think we had that, and then and we also looked at like the Beatles, the Hamburg look. Yes. And like, and we'd all started buying. We we just naturally gravitated into buying that clothes. We didn't like just sit down one day and say, you know, let's let's do that. But we just thought that's a good look, you know. So we all had these basically black leather jackets. And yes. kind of it, was, it was organic, you know, and like we didn't all cut our hair, go out into the barbers. We, we all had those crappy, shitty haircuts anyway, short haircuts. But it was and quite, it was, I mean, actually, because I do remember that everyone looked very mean and moody, didn't they, in the band? Yeah, that wasn't really intentional. I mean, it was, you know, and no one know. And no one smiled. Yeah. I can show you, you a couple look of pictures really, of You look all really tough, like Jesus, <laughs> like a gang. That wasn't, you know, I mean... There was not one, no, no, not one person is smiling in any of your pictures, are you? Right. That, was, that was kind of intentional. Because, <laughs> I mean, it wasn't like, let's look mean, but it was like, well, let's look at like, you know, those old photos of the Beatles and let's look at those photos of Velvet Underground. They kind of look cool. They look like they belong in the same band. Yeah, and we did. We, that's what we just wanted to look like was that we kind of belonged in, you know. I mean, and it wasn't overthought. It was just like down the pub, you know. Yeah, let's you know, fuck those bands, why don't we? Let's just like look like, 
we, we belong together, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's it. No more, no less, you know. <laughs> because because um, a lot of people who, you know, talk about forming bands in the 80s, I suppose there's a, it was like, there was, you know, obviously there was being punk, but then Orange Juice is one of those bands that everyone mentions. And then the other three are basically, I mean, a lot of the time, yeah. I mean, are like the Smiths, the June Brides that you just mentioned, yeah. and also the go-between. So there, there was definitely yeah. that 83 to 87, there was definitely yeah. an indie, you know, that jingly jangly sound that happened. But then you had all those other bands like, you know, Jesus and Mary Chain. And, yeah. I mean, well, every, every band you mentioned there was undeniably bands that we were listening to and were an influence, you know. The Jesus and Mary Chain's look was... You know, we didn't look at a picture of the Jesus and Mary Jane and say, that's what we want to look like. But they did have a similar thing where they looked like they belonged in the same band. Yes. And that's kind of what we wanted. You know, it was more that. You know, yeah, that, yeah. You know, so and, you, um, because you also, your first single was on Dan Tracy's famous, you know, the famous yeah, Dan absolutely. Tracy. Absolutely. So how did you find Dan or how did he find you? That was me. I, um, I, I loved TVPs and I got all their records and I knew that at the time he had what was called Wham Records. Right. And so I, I remember I, I sent, you know, we, we'd, we'd done a demo at a, a small studio and um, uh, I, I sent like three or four tapes out and I sent one to Creation. They passed. Did they? Uh, I sent Shocking. one to... Yeah, I know, yeah. <laughs> well, I suppose at the time they had the ja Jasmine Minx, didn't they? And Jesus Yeah, and, and I, I mean, I, and they, you know, I, I thought it was on, along the lines of what we were kind of doing. So I thought there might be something they'd be interested in. I sent one to um, Martin Whitehead, who just started Subway. Oh, yes. Label. And uh, he actually got back and said, you know, um, I like it. It's great. I can't do anything at the moment, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of reorganizing my label and I sent one to Dan, Dan. And, uh, and Dan wrote back and he said you know hey I, I really like it I played it to my girlfriend Emily who really likes it as well and he didn't say he was going to put a record out but he said why don't you come down to London and you know I run a club called Room at the Top right and why don't you play at Room at the Top and so we're like sure yeah and, and then when he put that in he wrote back and said, oh, by the way, the night before, television personalities are playing at the Deptford Crypt. Uh, would you like to su support us there as well? And we're like, yeah, brilliant. So God. it was the, the, the 12th and the 13th of July, 1985. I can remember the dates. Yeah. You know, significant. <laughs> and so we just drove in. Tony, our bass player, had got a Volkswagen caravanette camper van. So we just piled into that, drove down to London, supported TVPs on the Friday. And on the Saturday, which was really, the, it was the day of Live Aid. I know which, it well. We didn't really get the significance of it at the time because we were so wrapped up in the fact that we were playing our own little game. Yes. We supported the membranes at the room at the top. The John uh, Rock. And that was still with Martin on the, uh, Martin was still on drums then. And yes. No more, no less, we played it, we went down okay. And two weeks later, you know, Dan Tracy called. I was still living at home with, at the time before I'd, I'd moved out. And I was like 20 years old. And uh, he said, you're not going to believe it. There's a review in the NME of your gig by the legend. Right. And he says, like, it's the best. You're the best band. He said, you're like the future of pop. <laughs> which is completely preposterous and ridiculous. Yeah. And, and 
the phone started ringing, you know, and my poor mom was like answering the phone from these like major record labels and got uh, my phone number, you know, from God knows where and from Dan. And so then Dan immediately says, you know, uh, please, uh, I want to put your record out. So we went into, you know, Electro Rhythm Studios and two weeks later recorded five songs and that became the Like an Angel EP. Right. So, oh, God. so it was, it was, it happened really quickly. I, I can see. So when I bought that 12 inch, was that on Wham Records then? It was on Dream, it, well, well, in between that, it was on, it was on Dream World Records. Uh, basically Dan had got, I guess, I mean, it, it's hard to tell because there's a lot of like, you know, myths kind of yes. go around and that, but the, the, the word is, is that basically the band, he got Wham, the band's management, offered Dan a bit of money to, to change the name of his label. Yeah. Which like, may or may not be true, but I think oh, I think it's quite possible. Yeah. And that's why he changed it from Wham to Dreamworld. Nice. And the money, the money that he got, I believe, helped him carry the label on. And, you know, and at the time, you know, it was on Wham when we were, sorry, on Dreamworld, it was, there was us, 1,000 Violins, Ghost Service, TVPs. Um, I think that was about it at that time. Yeah, well, the, um, it, it was quite. I mean, you know, the one thousand violins all the way from Sheffield. I mean, they yeah. did. You know, they also. Actually, know the singer John's from Wolverhampton. The singer John Wood was from Wolverhampton. Oh, was he? Yeah, which is a bizarre. Did you, you know, know him? No. No. And then, but he turned out when we did get to know them that he's like, oh yeah, I was at your first gig at the Queen's Pub in Wolverhampton, and they're like, really? <laughs> we had no idea. Oh, fantastic! Yes. <laughs> But and I think how, John went, he went to Sheffield uh, University. And that's right. how he met Colin and uh, whatever the other guys' uh, names are. Colin yes. and, uh, uh, what are they? Pardon me. I can't remember them. But I did, do, I did an interview with Colin and, uh, and yep. heard about the 1,000 violins and their experience with right. Dan, which was great. You know, I mean, Dan's a legend, you know. And also, that, there's a yep. nice connection, because as you just mentioned, Emily, who went on to be part of the Hangman's Beautiful Daughter. Yeah, which is, I know. And... Uh, I mean, that's another small world because, you know, well, Emily, obviously, and, you know, I'm now, I've been good friends with well, Phil King and, uh, and Sandy as well. Who I've, you know, who I, I, I didn't know Sandy well at the time, but since like, you know, I've become really good friends with Phil. I, I did know at the time for when he was in The Servant, because yes. we played shows together. And, uh, but uh, in recent years, and then, because Sandy lives over here now, so we've got to know each other again. It's, it's been really nice just to reconnect with, with all these people. And it's really funny, especially because, like, at the time, like, um, you know, we, we weren't, like, um, antisocial or anything, but I think we were just kind of, like, nobody really, we, you know, we, we'd, like, nod and say hey to all these people and that, but we weren't really best friends or anything. But I think when you get a bit older, you kind of, like, just get more. Yes. Social or whatever. Well, I think sometimes you, you, I don't know. I expect a lot of the times one is quite shy and thinking, yeah. oh my God, they don't know me. So I'll just look over there and they're probably thinking, God, they look really offish. And I know, yeah. Well, people just like, like no, that's, that's just my insecurity. I'm just looking at that wall going, <laughs> Jesus, please just ignore me. And uh, you know what well, I mean? I think people thought that about us a lot because they, we were surprised that when they got to know it, they're like, oh my God, we haven't no idea that you're a lot of fun we thought you'd be like really like mean <laughs> grumpy miserable bastards you know <laughs> yes like no but yeah, absolutely just, but then so it, it worked you know because, oh, wait a minute so I was gonna 
So 85, 85 being your year, and obviously yeah. that's that, that's kind of live aid. So obviously that didn't get that didn't make the news that day, did it? But yeah. um, but then you know you you sort of within the next year you you feature on the famous NME cassette, don't you? Yeah. Which is kind well, of at the time no one could give a toss about it probably, and then went oh actually it's quite exciting. yeah. Well, it's funny that because like. You know, at the time when we were asked to do it, and because um, I remember like the enemy had done cassettes before. Loads. Like, yeah, I've got. I've got, I've got I've, I used to buy all of them, just even the country and western ones, jazz. Yeah, there was like I mean, there was C eighty one. I think was the first, wasn't it? That was much more but, arty. But they were like a lot of like they, they weren't. They were like a lot of bands like be outtakes and B sides and different versions. Yeah. So we, we thought C eighty six would be like that. So when we were asked to do it, you know, we made the mistake that we didn't realise the gravity of what it would, you know. So we, we gave them some demo. We gave them a demo of a new song, which was Happy Head, which is the one that's on it. And we didn't realise that bands like the Bodines would give them the Ian Brody produced version of Therese. You know, it <laughs> cost like probably, I don't know, thousands and thousands to, to record, whereas we gave them a, a demo of a song that we knocked out in our local eight-track studio, 16-track studio for like, you know, 30 quid or something, you know. But it, all kind of, it all kind of works though, doesn't it? Because you have, you know, like we've got a fuzz box and we're going to use it. And you had also the shop assistants and the yeah. Primal Scream single as well. So, and, and so it's all a pretty, you know, the Soup Dragons stunt, Bogshed. Uh. Like, again, I mean, Primal Scream, Velocity Girl, which is amazing. I mean, that was like a proper sing. Like, it was recorded at, with John Rivers at Woodbine Street, like a proper produced record, you know. And then Happy Head follows it, and it's basically a demo. You know, we, <laughs> we, we had no If we would have known, we would have given them like an angel yeah. or, or something, you know. So, ah, you live, you learn, I guess. I guess so, but then it didn't do any harm, did it, really? It didn't do you any harm yeah, at all. Really. I guess. I mean, it, it kind of sold out and it's kind of continually sort of being reissued as, a, you know, Cherry Red Records. So then how did, so from there, did the, did, you know, and obviously yep. your amazing reviews, did it start to sort of snowball quite, a, quite quickly? Because obviously there's a kind of a golden period in indie pop land in the 80s, isn't there, before ecstasy appears and the dance yeah. scene starts to appear as well. So did sure. you feel that you were, you know, onto something quite dramatic here? Well, that was a bit later. I mean, that 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 was more, um, you know, like later eighties. That that started, you know, um, coming being more apparent. The, the, the you know the indie, the indie dance crossover, yes. as they called it. But I think we were just a bit before that. You know, there was like, you know, um, there wasn't really that much. There was no real indie dance crossover that we were aware of at that time you know and we were one of the few bands that you know from c86 that got you know um i don't know it's like we, we had i mean we were kind of rank outsiders because we had no management no booking agent no nothing you know and everything was just kind of organic and kind of came to we didn't do anything we had no publicist we had we had no nothing you know and 
I don't know, I sometimes feel that there may have been a little bitterness from some of the other bands. I thought there was some machine or something behind us, but there wasn't, you know, and it was even at the stage where we were getting offers from major record labels, we couldn't find a manager. We went through two or three different management, you know, more, um, what's the word, commercial yes. kind of managers, but we just couldn't get along with it. You know, and, and, and we just, I don't know. And, you know, we had a thing that our one was, you know, uh, to meet our criteria of whether somebody was going to be our manager was, could you sit in, in the van from like London to Glasgow with them for like seven hours? And if it was like, no way, then it's like, well, we don't want them as our, our manager. Right. <laughs> our manager then. So that's how we, had, we ended up going with Stone Canning and Simon Edward you know, promoters who were the same age as us, they went to the same music as us. They'd never actually managed anyone before, but we kind of went with them because... Actually, I kind of, it just, it slightly bobbled there. What did, who did you go with? Uh, CERN, Canning and Simon Espen, the promoters. Who, they, they did like all the indie shows at Bay 63 and all that stuff. Right. At the, at the time, like, and, and uh, you know, so that they, and they were kind of new to the, the, the management thing, but we liked them. And we kind of trusted them and they, you know, they were smart. They, they knew a bit. Yeah. Cern was uh, doing kind of A&R in, uh, interning for Rough Trade. And, uh, and that was more our scene than, you know, than the corporate kind of management side yes. of things. And did you, I mean, because then yeah. you, you sign for with uh, Jeff Travis, don't you? His label. Yep. And that... Again, that was organic. That was Jeff. That wasn't nobody. He has came to us and we had, you know, we were overwhelmed by these, you know, dickheads from these major labels in their suits and their, you know, and it's like, hey, you know, we, we couldn't, whereas Jeff Travis was just, you know, I mean, we all knew what Rough Trade was and we all owned Speed Energy records yes. and all that stuff. So, and it, it was just, just it felt like the right person. Yeah. So that's why we went with Jeff. But. And then you got a, a, a sort of video made by the mains and Derek Jarman as well. That's right, well, he did, yeah, that was, I don't know how that came about. Because <laughs> he did one we for, just I think he did one with... for the Smiths, didn't he? A very arty video for the Smiths. So obviously this yeah, is he did. The stuff that we did was right after that. It's really funny because if you look at the, the three films that Derek Jarman made for The Queen is Dead, the same people that are in, because the Smiths don't actually appear in it, Yes. But uh, you know all the people that are in it. They are, they're actually in our out of hand video, the same people. Oh, it was really funny when we did the video. We like we were like ee! kind of pointing and sniggering as we recognised the that's from the uh, So uh, so you uh, went with the, and the also Queen. in America you were with Sire Records. That's right. So was that, that, that was that Seymour Seymour Stein, yeah. Well but basically we we were in a difficult situation where Seymour wanted to sign us to Sire, to Warner Brothers for the world, and Chrysalis Records with Jeff Travis. Jeff Travis via Chrysalis also wanted us for the world. And basically, to cut to basically, Sire were great in America, but at that time were not very good with English guitar bands in the UK. Right. Whereas Chrysalis were really good in the UK, you know, they'd had the whole two-tone thing and they'd got, they'd just got the House Martins to the top of the trust. But in the US, they, it was all about, Chrysalis was about Billy Idol and Pat Benatar. So in the end, we, we, we managed to 
we were in a position where we were able to, I don't know, somehow dictate it that we got, we signed with Sire for the US and Canada and for Chrysler's for the U UK and Europe. Yes. So and we got the best of both worlds. My God. And what were your record sales like on Happy Head? Uh, I don't really know exactly. It was before um, sounds kind of happened. The, the Happy Head it charted in the UK, in the lower regions, the singles got top 75. Uh, I know the second album in the UK, it, it got to like, it, went in the, it got in the top 30 of the major charts. And he sold about, I don't know, about, I think first week was about 35,000, 45,000, which isn't a lot by, by later standards. Uh, the US, it did uh, a lot better. We, we, um, we were like, because the US is structured differently because you got like college radio and alternative radio and that. And we were kind of big in that alternative kind of college scene in the US. Yes. And uh, like uh, our second album, World Without End, was that was the one that really probably did the best for us in the actually b b both the UK and and US. Because um, I interviewed your the producer Tim Palmer quite recently. Oh yeah, oh did you? Who, yeah, he did. He started. How was, out, how, how was that? He he was delightful. You know, I still was, I still see him. I, I've yeah. been him in a while. <laughs> he told me about Kajagugu, his kind of big break, I think, with and uh, I and uh, the cutting crew. You know, I died. I'm sure he worked with both of those. <laughs> <laughs> so he kind of had that sort of instant success, and then sort of obviously became known for his guitar work. You know, he, he didn't, he didn't though. I mean, to give credit to Tim, I mean, he paid his dues. He was like, a, started as a the low, a T-boy. Then yes. he became like tape op and then he became like assistant engineer. And he, so he he worked up and he was still, by the time he did out, he was still young. I mean, he was still only in his early mid twenties, like mid twenties tops, I think. Yes. So uh, you know, and he'd already by that time he'd done Robert Plant and David. You know, he'd done the, the Mission, who were huge in the UK at that time. He'd done their first album. Yes. And and, uh, Tim was great. He was brilliant. You know. Yeah. And Stephen Street did our first album actually. The one did Happy Head. Did he? My yeah, God. Of course. And he actually did it. It was in between. Again, we didn't realise the significance at the time, but Stephen had just finished The Queen Is Dead. And he'd started working on Strange Ways, Here We Come. And he'd just like tell us these stories about it. And we'd just like, yeah, whatever, you know. <laughs> this is the way our world is now, I guess. We're going to be here and stuff like that. We didn't, again, really get the gravity, not the gravity, again, I've said that word twice now, but the kind of uh, the, the, where we were, you know, it's like blind. You know? Yes. He'd like play us demos of like what was going to be, you know, the next. Smith's next thing. album, yeah, I suppose <laughs> yeah, that was quite exciting. So you, yeah, so who was the producer on your second album? Tim, Tim did the second. As Stephen well as... Street did the first and Tim Palmer did the second. Right, and World Without yeah. End. That was Tim, Tim Palmer. Was that one, was that the album that you're proudest of? Uh, that on what, sorry? Is that the album you're proudest of? Proudest of, yeah, in a way. I mean, Happy Head's great because it was a, just a document of the first year of the band. Yes. So it was all the songs we wrote at the beginning. And then we, you know, World Without End was like stage two, where we'd actually had to like, we never really had to write songs for an album before, you know. And it's like, right, now we need a second album. So it was like, whoa, you know. 
but it came quite easily. Yes. And then the biggest change was the album after that, which was called Laughter. Yes. So was this, was, had the honeymoon sort of, because every band has a bit of a honeymoon period, was this where things had changed a bit? Well, I mean, it had in the way that we started selling a few records, we were playing bigger venues, we toured America, which we'd not done at the beginning, you know, and, you know, and things change, you know. And then, you know, after World Without End, which did quite well, and it was, especially in the States, it was in America. It was like, you know, it's really funny, I've got a Rolling Stone printout of the college radio top 10 and it's like like mighty them dots world that ends number one um, i think morris is number two and talking heads is number three Excellent. Or something. and it's like wow yeah it. <laughs> it's like it's bizarre you know just to to see that so so i mean it, that did change things because by the time we came to do the third album the expectations were a little higher and we had to kind of you know perform I guess or whatever you want to call it I don't know but we had to deliver you know and and you know and that's why that's when we actually the major you know change in the band was we parted company with Tony it was not only the bass player but he was my co-songwriter yes he he basically I mean Tony wrote as good as wrote like an angel you know I helped a bit but it was mainly him right you know and, and what um, and and what was the reason for him leaving? I think it was a mixture of a lot of things. It was just things that you know changed, and you know uh, I don't know. It was a mixture of maybe the pressure to come up with I don't know, and like I mean, you, you always think that you're not going to have pressure from your record label to have hits and stuff, but. But you do, yeah. <laughs> you know. We found that out, you know. And um, I don't, I don't know. It was just, you know, just pe- you, people, people change. You, you know. Were you surprised, or did you feel like, oh yeah, something's? He's not a happy bunny. It was, yeah. It was a, yeah, a bit of both. He, he was not quite as happy with the way things were, and I don't think he liked in as much as you know he's, he's a couple of years older than me as well and he I think Tony he was just he was getting married at that time and you know um I don't know I mean uh, you'd have to ask him really yes, because, yeah, I sorry. mean we're all we're, we're you know I mean we're all best best of friends now but he did say to me it's like a few years later after the band had finished that he said one of the biggest regrets of his life was like fucking it up basically and he said uh, he had no idea why he felt like he did, but he just, you know, wasn't feeling it. And but he realised it, you know, and he was man enough to admit it and say that, I, you know, I hope I didn't screw anything up, but he did, considered it a mistake, you know. And so it was that was a major turning point for the band because he meant that I was now the the main, the principal songwriter of the band. Yeah, was t- Tony wrote half the stuff, and I would write half the stuff. And you know, we were halfway. We just started our third album, and I suddenly had to come up with all the the songs that became the Laughter album. Yes, that must have been. You know, I mean, you just buckle up and do it, don't you? I guess, <laughs> I guess so. so. 
the pressure, the, yeah, it must be, I mean, were you in, you know, because by then this is the late eighties, so ecstasy had definitely happened. So you'd had that kind yeah. of wave of the Stone yeah. Roses and Happy Mondays. This was just starting to happen then, actually. Right. It was, you know, because, and it was, by the time we made the third album, because it was like Stone Roses were like, I remember them, that, like band, like Stone Roses, they used to come and watch like the Lemon Drop. We were like, strangely big in Manchester for some reason. And we, like, whereas in the rest of the country, we've been, been playing to like 800, 1,000 people. Like in Manchester, we would sell out like International 2, which was like 2,000 people. Right. And I remember like Stone Roses would come and, you know, they were, you know, I said they were like massive fans of the band or anything, but I just remember like, oh, Stone Roses are there. And so that, that was when things started changing was when, I mean, they 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 changed everything. I mean, they came out with a phenomenal album. Yes. You know, and it was, and they incorporated, we were just getting into what you were saying, that the whole dance thing and the, the rave and the ecstasy thing. Yes. That was when we kind of got left behind in the UK at that point. Because, I mean, we were kind of, I mean, uh, it's not that we weren't into it, because we were aware of it and, and were. But we didn't suddenly put like a baggy dance beat underneath all our songs, which yeah. you know, naming no names, certain other bands did, you know. But um, yeah, but you know, also yeah. you had in Seattle, you know, we had the kind of I remember John Peel yeah. playing the Sub Pop 100 album and thinking, and then we'd yeah. also had Huskadoo and the Butthole yeah. Surfers and Sonic Youth, so the, and Big Black. Yeah. So the that was exciting, time, yeah. but then you sort of like, there was definitely this, okay, you know, you had the throne Moosers and Pixies, and then you had yeah. Nirvana as well. And, and but I, don't think, think there was, I don't think there was any real crossover between much of that, was there? I mean, between, you're right about like Pixies and Muses and that. And, um, but I don't think there, were, there was many people that would, go to both raves and go to Pixies. Oh, were there? I mean, maybe, I don't know. I, I don't know, yeah, I mean, it's a tricky, there? yeah, I mean, you might get one of your, nowadays you'd probably get a compilation, wouldn't you, like hits of you the, might, you get hits some, of the yeah. 80s, they'd probably have it all on that. But I think, again, when you're that age and you've got, a, you know, so much, you know, limited money and, but you have probably got a bit more time if you're younger. Yeah. You might have got into both. I mean, I was kind of obsessed with John Peel, so I would be like, oh, yeah, the Bundu Boys or Gregory Isaacs. Oh, like, you know, India yeah. or thrash metal. So, you know, Napalm Death. So, I mean, John Peel was a bit of a... I was a bit obsessed, just a bit obsessed with him. So kind of anything he played, yeah. I was like, yes, please, that's great. You know, Aaron Neville, some soul music from the 60s. So it was quite right. interesting stuff. But I think, in that's a way, perfect. most people would have gone one way or the other, I guess. I think so. But I mean, it's funny you mention that, but I mean, you know, I was kind of into all of it though, really. I mean, you know, and it's even like into like the, you know, the late 80s, early 90s, when the American, like when the, you know, the likes of Nirvana and Tad and all the Soundgarden started coming to the UK. I'll admit I kind of, I was aware of it. But I, I, I mean, when I look back at some of the shows that I could have gone to, like Nirvana playing at the, you know, the Cod Club in Birmingham to like 75 people, you know, I didn't go, you know, <laughs> I don't know why, but, <laughs> but, uh, but uh, so I, I don't know, it was, there was a crossover, but there was also, you know, you got bands like then, you know, there were some, there were, there were British bands who were, you know, pre-Britpop, 
I mean, yeah. you, had, you had a band like the Wonder Stuff, for instance, who were like, you know, phenomenally successful in the UK. They didn't really have a lot of the same amount of success in the US. Well, I suppose, yeah, I mean, but, and, and, but yeah, because you're right, because there's those bands who, who don't fit in those scenes, but they were like My Bloody Valentine. Um, yeah, the, the Sundays had also appeared, and then slightly like, right. oh, actually, the the parties changed. But well, you know, this is like early, had... this is early nineties though, though, isn't it? This is when there was that kind of stuff. Yeah, well, I think their fa yeah. famous album, Read and Write and Arithmetic, was eighty nine. I think it just crept in in the. Oh, well, it was, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but then you had. Um... Well, that that was that was six. That, that was big in America. Yeah, was the, the last. Like there she goes. Was um, I think that was a Billboard top forty hit. Yeah. I still hear it in like when I'm in like the, you know, Vons Market. You well, and, and also I think it probably appears in a lot of Hollywood soundtracks, doesn't it, as well? Yeah, it does, it's, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, fun. yeah. And it's been covered. But you did have like Carter, the Unstoppable Sex Machine. Yeah. They probably did. That, that, was, that was a UK thing. I mean, that, yeah. they, they were not successful in the US, were they? They wouldn't have got Carter, would they? You know, they wouldn't have got it, would they? <laughs> <laughs> Carter would not. And you had that whole North uh, London scene, didn't you? Like Silverfish, the Bloody Valentines. Yeah. Um, uh, the the Camden movie. Lurch. Yeah, the yeah. Camden Lurch. You know, all that <laughs> kind of gang, the George Roby gang. Um, well, my, well my, my mate Roger, actually Roger Cowley used to be, he was a, he worked with Lemon Dops. He used to do, our, um, he would do slides and projections and stuff. He, he ran the um, the uh, Camden, the not the Falcon, the, uh, uh, yeah, he put on all those bands like back right. then. Yes, <laughs> and Lush. There was also Lush, wasn't there? With obviously Phil King, he was in sure, yeah. a lot of bands. So then, uh, yeah. yeah. So Phil, when you, yeah, he's, he's been in one or two. Yeah, he's yeah, been yeah. yeah, just a few. <laughs> yes, I think he's he's, he's he's put his base down, now, hasn't he? Yeah. After after the Lush experience, but um, I know. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. Don't get Phil started on that, by the way. No, God, don't, <laughs> don't, don't let's mention that. I was talking talking to him this morning, by the way. <laughs> nothing, nothing lush related. Yeah, 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 good. <laughs> Just um, yeah. I know that's that's an amazing story, isn't it? Um, right. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So anyway, laughter. So were you because that didn't go down so well, did it? But you toured big time in America at that stage. On the the third album. Yeah. Yeah, we did. Yeah. I mean, that that that, that album actually did sold more than the World Without End. It actually is the only it got in the Billboard 200, which was for, for a, a smallish UK indie band at that time. That was not bad going, you know. Yes. Uh, so it it you know it it did all right, and we I mean we we toured like mad on that. We 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 did like this crazy like four month US tour and. You know, I mean, a lot of bands did that. I've talked to Phil, Phil King again a lot about that. Lush, Lush toured America like three times in one year or something. Like this, this is a few years later, but but that's kind of the way you kind of try and do it there. Blur did the same. Right. They, 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 they spent like a year in America, I think, but trying to, for some reason, I, I can't remember, I've, I've read stuff, but so, um, but yeah, but the, the third album we, you know, that was the, the last really, you know, moderately successful Lemon Dops album. Yeah. Really. We did we made a couple more, but you did you did a couple more. Because you know, <laughs> most, most bands have the five year narrative, don't they? They have the especially in the eighties, you know, like twelve months getting it together, John Peel gives it a play, the John Peel session, yeah. suddenly yeah. the first album. There's all these you know, and as I probably 
you can, you know, you can remember there was all, every town had an indie night, didn't they? So Norwich had one, you know, and I'm not going to go around yeah. the country, but everybody had an indie alternative night that you could go and play in. So most people, yeah. you know, the thing about being in a band, and I don't know how it works now, but it's just being able to feel like your progress and then playing in front of people you don't know is kind of important. So there was that circuit, wasn't there? But then often the second yeah. album is tricky, the third album can be even trickier. But you yeah. managed to sort of go beyond five years and do five albums or six we did yeah we did five uh, we did five there was like a mini album in between the first and the second in the u.s but we did five albums really the um the fourth album was called sound uh, that 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 ain't that's no show stopper in any great album really for a lot, a lot of different reasons and <laughs> so, we did how, one... so how were you emotionally you know because because obviously you've lost one member of the band who's critical yep. and you've just done you know the the laughter album so how did you sort yep. of feel going into recording sounds sound um i don't know it was just we we basically lost our uk did we we chrysalis basically didn't want to do another album so we had to renegotiate <coughs> excuse me our deal with uh Sire Warner Brothers in the UK, which meant that sorry in the US, which meant that Warner's in the UK would be putting out the, the the sound album, and we kind of got bullied into using a producer and a production team that we didn't really wouldn't have chosen, and that didn't help. And rather than you know we were lucky because the three main producers that we'd worked previously. Stephen Street, Tim Palmer, and Mark Wallace, who did Laughter, had really brought out the best in the bands. And the guy, I won't even mention the name, but the person that produced Sound didn't bring out the best in the band at all. It was quite the opposite. Right. Um, what was there, what could have been made good, was kind of like made even worse. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and it just was not, it just was not a great record. I mean, it, we're not without blame. It was partly a, you know, I don't know, we were kind of confused. I was as the writer and again, like, I don't know. It's it just, it's not a great album. But I do think we made, made it up a little with the final album, Ricochet, which Sire agreed to, Sire in the US said they, basically give us one more. Right. We, we got full reign to do whatever we wanted on that. And I had the idea of working at a smaller studio, at Elephant Studios in Wapping with Nick Robbins, who'd done lots of bands like the, you know, he did a lot of records with The Sound and Adrian Borland. And it also, he, he did some work actually on My Bloody Valentine on, um, and stuff. And a lot more of kind of an indie kind of yeah. stuff. And I think that album, I think, stands up. The last one, Ricochet. That's quite good. It didn't come out in the UK, so you probably wouldn't even know of it. But but it was, you know, it it, it stands up. I think it's good. Yeah. Uh, but it didn't, you know, it didn't go crazy in sales-wise. And uh, we did one last US tour. And we just decided that, you know, it's been eight, eight years now eight we've been years. doing it. And, you know, I think it might be, we didn't, you know, there was no big thing. Let's, you know, 
and I'll break up the band, man. He was just like, yeah, call it a day. You've had a good run. Yeah. It's about time to F off and let the, some of the younger bands, younger, we're, I think I was 28 at the time. Did you, when, <laughs> when you were watching, you know, Top of the Pops and seeing the Britpop period, did you yeah. sort of think, oh, actually this, we could have almost, if we had stuck with it, we could have. I do, you know, it's funny, I do now a bit at the time, I just thought, nah, this is good and it's vibrant and I like it and it's good now. Richard guitar music's doing it again. But I did think, you know, it, it ain't that far away from what we were doing, really. Yeah. I mean, it's like, with the, that was, it's 10 years later, you know, and that's a long time when, you, when you're younger, you know. We yeah. started in 85, Britpop was 95, you know. I know. So, I mean, no, I mean, yes and no. I mean, I, I loved it. It was great because I moved to America in 95 and all of the bands that were huge in the UK would play like 200 capacity clubs here in LA and it was brilliant. Like I see all, all of the, <laughs> like Pulp, like when they were like number one with different, played at like a 500 capacity club. Yeah. It was brilliant. It was great. And they probably thought, who the hell is this band from Britain? Blur. Yeah. Well, again, the Anglophiles would be there and the, yes. you know, like Bingenheimer types and, and all that. Uh, it was great, really. You know. So what? What? Right, what? What sort of made you think I'm going to do a Lemmy here and go to LA? <laughs> I think because when the, the Lemon Drops ended at the end of '92, '93, and I, I, I mean, get this, I did what lots of people. But I, I worked at Record and Tape Exchange, Music and Video Exchange, right? Which is isn't that what a lot of uh, like uh, just about everybody that every other person that worked there had been in a band <laughs> right. or something. And I'd always run into people, even coming in the shop that I used to know. And so I did that for two years. I worked at I worked in Shepherd's Bush branch, then I got moved to the Notting Hill branch, which did I worked you, at. Because because as a fan, you you don't realise that actually there is so little money for the bands. You always think they've made some money and, and, and you haven't heard from them, mainly because they're probably having a nice retirement, an early retirement. But you know, I mean, we, we were, again, we were very fortunate because we got, we, I don't know, we, we, we basically made it, paid ourselves a wage from the band from 1986 to the end of 1992. And like, and we, we were lucky. I mean, you, that wouldn't happen nowadays. No. Unless you sold like, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of records, which, you know, I mean, we got close to that, but not never quite crossed that kind of over the top. But, but um, yeah, I mean, you know, I was, you know, I, we all bought small little houses out of it and bought cars and, you know, nothing extravagant. But we made a living from being yes. in a pop group, in a pop group for eight, seven years, eight years, which was great. And, you know, then it came to an end. And it's like, so it was, you know, None of us were rich or wealthy or anything, so we had to get day jobs. Yeah. And that's what you do. So I, I didn't know what else to do, so I worked at Record and Type Exchange. Had a great time, by the way. It was brilliant. Yeah. And that's why. And then, so I did that for a couple of years. And I was actually, I was married by that point. And my wife is American, originally from Los Angeles. And, you know, just thought one day, you know, what about giving, moving back to, you know, moving to America. So that's what I did in 1995. And uh, been here for 25 years. So is it the case that you moved over like quite a few people, not everyone, but into the world that is kind of 
production i mean a lot of people do tool management don't they or tech uh, management but you you've become a producer i could have done that i mean i wasn't that ambitious i didn't when i moved here i really didn't have a fucking clue what i was going to do so i, I joined a band i formed a I co-formed a band with a, a guy you know and uh you know we, we did okay we you know we, we we got you know almost we got turned down by every major record label basically <laughs> but we got almost got signed by you know again and at that point i was like you know i don't know if i want to keep doing this anymore you know so i don't know one day like i just you know i was lucky that i had this two-car garage at the back of the house that we'd just got and uh It'd be nice to be nice to have a little recording studio, wouldn't it? So I, I did it for myself. This was nineteen about a year later, ninety six, and I converted it into a studio, thinking it'd keep me busy for a year or two, maybe record a couple of my friends' bands, my mates' bands, and that's what I did. And then they told somebody else, and then they and then kind of just kind of escalated from that, and then I ended up and I, you know, got a couple of produced a couple of records that got picked up by labels and that was 20 years ago and that's why I thought it would last for a couple of years and I'm still doing it <laughs> somehow still doing that I don't know it's crazy. excellent so are you the are you the go-to person in LA for sort of indie bands not really, nah, not really. Uh, uh, on, a, on a smaller level I mean um, you know if, uh, yeah no, I mean there's so many people here doing it you know but um, you know, uh, you know, it's word of mouth. I've never advertised, you know, and just you know, people find me, and I just kind of do stuff. You know, a couple of the bands I've worked with got picked up by you know, um, uh, a couple of actually Heavenly Jeff Barrett picked up a band called the Little Ones that I worked with, and also the Soft Pack I worked with. They were also on Heavenly. A band called the Blood Arm that right. I did work with early on. They they got picked up in uh, the UK and Europe and, you know, just, again, you know, they were, you know, bands that came and were friends and, you know, found me and... They did it. Just did it, yeah. So then, we're coming up to the current day then, you've done uh -huh. a new album, Dave... I know. And the, and the Mighty Angels. So when did my, you... At my age, I know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so when did you... Was this your... Is this your first solo kind of album at this stage? Yeah, it is really. I um, About 10 years ago, on downtime in my studio, I just... I'd started putting some songs together and then I got... I got a friend to come in and play drums on them and I put out an EP in um, 2011 with no expectations and it got, you know, people liked it. They got some nice reviews and, you know, uh, you know, that was that. And then I kind of put it on the back burner, carried on doing my, my day job, just working with other bands. And, but I would still put songs down from time to time of my own. Yes. And, and, you know, I mean, it, that sounds like a cliche now, but the kind of lockdown time I've had, and, you know, because I've obviously, I don't really want, and I'm, no, I understand that people wouldn't want to have loads of people congregating in a small space recording at the moment. Yes. So uh, I just thought, you know what, I've got all these unfinished, half-finished songs. So 
I just put them together and made an album and put it together and thought I'd put it out and uh, that's the one that's out now. And I'm kind of, I'm sure, again, I had no expectations. I just thought I'd put it out. And it's been, it's been lovely. Got some yes. really you know, kind words and reviews and some radio play and here and there. And it's, you know, so... <laughs> Well, it's, it's it, well, it was quite, really. what's quite interesting is that a lot of the people who I've interviewed, I mean, most, I mean, a lot do keep sign of in music in a way, quite a few don't, but then they've come back. Yep. But in the last, say, three or four years, I've just noticed so many people have brought out albums, you know, like the guy <laughs> from The Brilliant Corners, like I said, it, it, oh, yeah, it's, immaterial, yeah. it, it's immaterial. And... Which guy from The Brilliant Corners? Davey. Davey, right Yeah. So, I, I didn't know about that. So, you know, he's, he's you know, and, and various, I, I know the Primitives recently brought out either an album or an EP and the Darling Buds. They did, did yeah, 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 yeah. And the Darling Buds brought out an EP as well a few years ago. And and probably, did, you know, yeah. if you go through all those bands, you know, they all recently put out something of, you know, a varying, you know, enthusiasm and, and passion and, you know, just kind of interest. And, and it's kind of really nice that people are still sort of, doing it because it's you know quite because no one has that thing that is going to sell 20,000 copies it's like actually I just quite enjoyed it. No I know that, that's the kind of is like my my kind of going into it. It's nice. But by the way, did you see the thing that um, I was involved in recently I don't know if you've seen them but uh, Richard from Potter Lead itself and James from EMF have been doing this thing called Tonight Matthew I'm going to be you know based on the um, uh, what's the, the UK yeah. show Stars in Our Eyes is it? And it, they, they basically do each week, it's been a lockdown thing. It's called Tonight Matthew, I'm going to be. And uh, I, they asked me to get involved in one. And it was, it was Richard and James, uh, me, Tracy Tracy from The Primitives, uh, Tom from um, Inspiral Carpets. And, uh, and we did a cover of Buzzcocks Ever Fallen In Love, just as a lockdown thing. Film. It's on YouTube. But that, they did a bunch of them with a, a load of different people, and uh, they, they're fun to check. You should check them out. But it was really funny because I'd not been in touch with a lot of those people for, like, you know, like Tracy from the Primitives. I'm not spoke to since 1986 or 1987 or something. I don't think. Yeah. It's just really nice. But they're on YouTube. They're worth if anybody's listening. So, who, so who's YouTube. involved with that from Peter Pop Will Eat Itself? It's basically Richard, March from, well, probably Reed Self and Bentley Rhythmice, of course. And uh, James uh, Atkins from EMF. Ah, uh, yes. And uh, that, that's basically it's their project. And uh, But they get a lot of other people involved. And there's a whole series of them. Oh, God, I have and, to check uh, that there's out. There's lo lots and lots of different people involved. Uh, yes. You know, there are too many to mention. This is not the top of my head. I'm not going to... No, I know. I'm just saying. It's like, you know, you often do that classic. Oh, there's loads of people who brought What's back it? records recently. And I go, oh, God, I can remember two. I know, yeah. That, that's so, that <laughs> was such an underwhelming thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> but if you Google it, if you just put tonight, Matthew, and uh, either... Yes. Know, so what they're, I mean, just brief, just briefly, I mean, because obviously this year's gone a bit weird. Um, just how? Yes. Yeah, so what's what's your sort of plan for the in next twelve months, eighteen months? I've no idea. <laughs> Let's see uh, where, where we are with the you know pandemic and stuff. And is it the case? Because there yeah. was a guy from oh the Mega City Four. He's got you know. Oh, he yeah. 
production stuff, his studio. And then it was like, okay, we've had to close the door, but hopefully it'll open and people will come back in again. Is it the case that you'll have the same or started to have the same experience that people are knocking and saying, actually, let's book it again? I've had the occasional person in the studio, like I had, I've done, since lockdown, I've done, I, I had one album that was half finished, which I had to mix. So I did that. And I've only had one other person in the studio since then. I mean, I'm, I, I don't know where it's going to go. I mean, who knows? There may be people that want to come in. I certainly don't think that it would be wise at this point to have multiple people in a relatively small yes. space doing... I don't know. I don't think so. So, I mean, I don't know. It's just like, you know, let's see. You know, I mean, I... I can't say, you know, I was supposed to be in the UK on redoing the annual UK trip. Uh, that was cancelled. Uh, you know, I was going to go to South by Southwest this year. That was cancelled. Next, I mean, I don't think next year's South by Southwest is going to happen because they, they normally start announcing stuff in August and there's been nothing. So I don't see how that's going to happen next year. So uh, who knows? I mean, you don't know. Do you? No. I mean, Nobody knows. <laughs> it, it is weird. Yes. Strange time, strange time. It, it is a strange time. Just and just lastly, I mean, if you were to a if you were able to sort of, you know, with the decades of experience, I mean to say something to an 18-year-old <laughs> self, like yourself, say, when you were starting, if you could have said something to them, I mean, what would you what would you ask them? What would you what would you whisper or, or shout in their ear? Get a proper job. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's like you never know. The, you don't know what the, the path and the course of your life's going to take, do you? I mean, I, I just wonder, I just wonder I, if there was something that you thought, oh, God, I wish I'd known that, you know, just that, whether it's to do with contracts, whether it was to do with drugs, whether it was to do with just like, yeah. I would have just said, don't, don't do that or don't do that or... I haven't, I, I don't really have any regrets. My My only regret that I really have is that when I moved to LA in 1995, that I didn't do something more musically of my own. I think that was kind of a mistake. I, I, I don't know, I didn't think I was, I mean, I was like 30 years old at the time, which when you're younger, when you're 30 and you, you know, cause I, I mean, I, you know, I, I did quite a bit really in my twenties really with the yeah. drops and everything. And I kind of felt at that point now that's it's not a regret. That's the closest thing I'm having to regret is that I didn't do something a bit more of my own, you know, than when I was younger. And that, you know, and I did the, the other thing I did, but what I did do, by the way, which we overlooked, was that in between Lemon Drops and me moving here, I played with Blue Aeroplanes. Uh, I actually I was kind of involved in two, what, what turned out to be two different albums with them, which I mean, that was a lot of fun. And I mean, off the off the back of that, I should have done something. I don't know. I just that's my that's my only regret, really. Yes. It's interesting. The Blue Airplanes are one of those albums because they had done Swagger, hadn't they? Which was yeah. That. And then I, I was I was after Swagger. There was Swagger, and then there was Beat Songs, which is a great album. Yes. Then then basically what happened was the band basically imploded because they you know they're like a seven piece, eight piece. Yeah, they were a lot of the key, key members left, and we had the same management as the aeroplanes, and they basically put, you know, I cannot put it in the right way, not an emergency lineup together, but 
you know, they were halfway through doing an album and there wasn't a band anymore. So that's how I got involved. And they, I, had a, I wrote a bunch of songs which they liked and I ended up playing a bunch of shows with them, went to Europe with them. And as did Marcus, the second Lemonos bass player, Susie Hug, who was in Katie Dids. I don't know if you remember that band. No. Uh, yeah, Susie, she, well, she was, um, she joined and uh, it was, uh, you know, it was, uh, uh, it was fun. Yeah, I remember. Oh, I, got, I, got, I, forgot, I forgot to mention that, by the yes, way. Yes, the, the blue <laughs> So who was the person that you meant, Susie who? Susie Hug, H-U-G. She's, she's in a band Katie Dids. The guitarist was Adam Seymour. He went on to join Pretenders. Right. Yeah. God, it's just, it's just. Heard of that? Yeah. yeah I <laughs> I like, no, the Pretenders. No, I have no idea. Um, yes, uh, call myself a pop fan. Yeah. Oh, uh, bloody hell! So was that an interesting experience? Because obviously, having a band that's exploded and then walking into a picking up the pieces in a slightly, you got the, it was like the AA, weren't you? Yeah. You had to go in <laughs> and, and, and go, right. <laughs> so was, 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 it, was it an interesting sort of, you know, atmosphere when you walked in going? It was brilliant. I mean, you know, I, I clicked it a lot of it. The drummer was Paul Mulvaney, who'd been in Jazz Butcher. And he played with some of the creation bands as well. Who, he's a really he's a great guy. Oh, and, God, uh, Paul, yes. Jeez, I've done Paul a with him, yeah. Rod, Rodney Allen was still in the band as well. He did a song called Glastonbury, didn't he, Rodney? I think you, you, you may well have, you might, yeah. Was he an acoustic guitarist? He did, yeah, Paul. He was a drummer, but Rodney or... Um, Rodney. Rodney, Rodney. Oh, yeah, he was a... Oh, yeah, he did loads of... Well, he is, he's from Pilton. Yeah. And his family were kind of involved the with... Pilton the Pilton and yeah yeah so yeah so um well i've known rodney for years and years i mean he would like when lemon drops first started he would just lag his way into with his acoustic guitar playing songs before we went on and stuff nice. that was way before the blue airplane so so yeah. there was a connection there was a connection yeah but, uh, and, and did you just kind of did you just do what you had to do or did you did it just not it was basically they, they they had a bunch of commitments when the band kind of you know, I don't, I, I don't know really how to put it because, like, I wasn't involved in it, but basically a lot of the members left <laughs> and went on to, you know, like um, Alex, Alex Lee formed Strange Love, uh, Angelo joined uh, Massive Attack, and uh, so, you know, um, so basically all us people came in, you know, the core of the band was was Gerard, Gerard Langley, Wojtek the dancer, Rodney Allen on guitar, yes. and Paul Mulvaney on drums. And then the rest of it was, you know, myself and Marcus from the Lemon Drops, Susie from Katie Did, Pat Fish from Jazz Butcher helped out a bit. Blimey. Uh, a guy called Bob Bradley, who um, was in a band called Love Babies. So how, uh, he, how, he how did, how did Gerard, Gerard deal, you know, was he... How, did, how was he dealing with this kind of fallout of the band? Well, it was amazing, really, because they already had, there was an, in, uh, a B, uh, an ITV, ATV, uh, set, well, I can't remember what the network was, a, a TV con, in concert booked right. from Town and Country Club, the Kentish Town Forum. And we had two weeks to put the band together. 
and it's on YouTube. I'm actually, I, I'm in it like myself. And there's a couple of clips on YouTube. You can actually, I think Cherry Red put it out on um, DVD as well. Nice. And uh, but we did this like with literally no notice. This band just like was like bang, put in the rehearsal room for a week, and like just like learned 17 songs. <laughs> and uh, it, it was intense but fun, really. It was a good yeah. time. And did you enjoy doing the album with them? Yeah, it was brilliant. We did. It was done really quickly. We didn't know it was going to be an album. It was just like we booked a studio in Bristol. I had a bunch of songs. Susie had a bunch of songs. Uh, a few of us had different songs. And uh, we recorded seven or eight songs in a few days. And then, you know, we did some shows. And then they, they what are the albums called again? There's one called Life Model. And there's one Beat called songs, Life Model and then Rough Music, but you probably yeah, that, I'm on both of those. I'm on Life and Rough Music. Wow, yeah, there you go. You know them then. Yeah, it, yeah. I, I I actually co-wrote a bunch of songs on both of those. The last two. Albums. Is it the case that that still to this day you you kind of occasionally go, oh, I've got a royalty check with all this music you've made? Like, oh. I've not made a very 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 few royalties from Blue Airplanes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know whether that's Beggar's Banquet's doing or... Um, yes. oh, actually, I shouldn't say this. No, no, Jesus, let's not. But, but, uh, I mean, do you, but, but, with, the, but with the Mighty Lemon Drops, do you still get a like, oh, that's nice, I'll, I'll buy it? Uh, once in a while. I mean, we don't own... Because uh, basically, if you're a, a, you know, a, a, an artist, you, you got the, the recording. Yeah. Uh, all of our recordings are still owned by Chrysalis in the U Europe or... Sire Warner Brothers in the US. Yeah. Now, we never sold enough records to pay back our advances and recording costs. Yeah. So we do not get any royalties from that. However, as a songwriter, I mean, I, you know, myself and Tony who wrote the songs, you know, we, we get a little bit of the publishing money. Yeah. Like not massive amounts or anything, but so, you know, but um, uh, the earlier stuff we, you know, the band, you know, Kind of the the indie stuff we, we kind of own, but it's you know it's not like it's small amounts. Of yes, well, I know. Well, it's interesting with the C eighty six one because the Jerry Red brought out that triple CD box set, didn't they? Which must we know. Been... Ch Ch I should point this out too, by the way. I'm actually in the process of working with Cherry Red. Uh, well, the whole band, are not just me. I should say uh, they're doing a five CD box set which we're just finalising the paperwork now, of the first three albums, radio sessions, BBC sessions, the Peel session, the indie Like an Angel EPs on it. And, it, and that's scheduled. It's, it's in the process. We, we, you know, it's been, the licensing stuff is, has been cleared, I think, and we're just putting it together now. Excellent stuff. That, dear listener, is the end of the interview. Thank you for listening. If you still are, this has been David Eastall, the C86 show. Massive thank you to David Newton from the mighty Lemon Drops for that interview. Um, that's all I can say apart from exciting stuff about Cherry Bread Records, what not to like. Anyway, if you want to contact me for some random reason, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do at C86 show. Keep it positive, please. And um, also these have all been archived. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Have a great week.